Hi, everyone. I'm Adam Scher, Vice President for Collections and Exhibitions at the Virginia Museum of History and Culture. And welcome to a special at-home edition of our Banner Lecture Series. Uh, the museum may be closed for the time being, but we're still here for you uh, to enrich your life by preserving and sharing Virginia's history. If you haven't already seen what we've done thus far uh, during uh, our time away from the building, uh, please go to virginiahistory.org slash at home to enjoy a curated selection of free digital resources that includes podcasts, webinars, virtual tours, and hours of recorded lectures from the Banner Lecture archives. Uh, we're also launching a new series of talks by BMHC curators next week uh, on social media and video platforms, so please stay tuned for that. Of course, none of the work that we do uh, would be possible without the generous support of our members. Uh, unlike our neighboring museums, we don't receive state operating support, and it's through private donations that we're able to preserve and share Virginia's story and offer quality programs like this Banner Lecture Series. So thank you very much for your support. Uh, before we begin, uh, remember that you can ask questions, uh, which we'll address after the talk, uh, if you're logged into Facebook or YouTube. So today's speaker is John Long. Uh, John is the Director of Education at the National D-Day Memorial in Bedford. Uh, he's taught history at Roanoke College, at Radford University, and Virginia Western Community College. He's a contributing columnist for the Roanoke Times and has written extensively on local history and World War II. Uh, his subject for today, A Fiendish Murder, The Sad Saga of Charles and Susan Watkins, recalls a drama played out in southwestern Virginia in 1891 that attracted nationwide attention and held the citizens of the Roanoke Valley spellbound. And I'm sure he'll do the same for us today. So John, please, uh, please take it away. Thank you, Adam. And uh, thank you to all the tech wizards behind the scenes that are making this happen, because I think I speak for Adam as well to say if it were up to the two of us, this probably wouldn't be happening. So we appreciate it. It's amazing what can be done in this day and age with, uh, with distance learning and online programs. We here at the National D-Day Memorial are also closed uh, at the moment uh, and looking forward to reopening in the near future. But uh, glad to be able to reach out and, and help to tell our story through uh, a lot of different uh, various programming. So uh, thank you. And uh, it's good to be here and talk about uh, my recent book, Murder in Roanoke County, and a story that captivated me for many years as I researched it. Uh, and I'll, uh, I'll actually start at the beginning, several years ago, uh, before I came to the D-Day Memorial. I was the director of the Salem Museum uh, in Salem, uh, the, the county seat of Roanoke County. Uh, and a uh, patron came in one day and asked a question, uh, who was the last person to be hanged in Salem, judicially hanged? Uh, in, in Roanoke County, and I replied that uh, there weren't very many executions in Roanoke County uh, back in the 19th century, but uh, knew of some, and the last one uh, of which I was aware uh, involved a man described in an account written years later as a mulatto uh, who was uh, involved, romantically involved with a white woman uh, and who killed his African-American wife in order to continue that relationship. 
Uh, but I said, I didn't really, really didn't know many of the details, just what was written you know, decades later in a retrospective. Uh, but I said, I, I'll look into it and I will uh, promise to tell you more in the future. So I began to look into the case. And what I discovered was, uh, first of all, a treasure trove of records involved, especially the newspaper accounts that were online. Uh, but uh, also discovered that this was a case that uh, didn't make the local history books, but at the time was an absolute sensation in 1891, dominating the headlines in the Roanoke Valley uh, and making newspapers across the country uh, because it was a case that really had everything necessary to uh, rivet the attention of the public. Uh, it involved race, it involved violence, it involved bigamy, it involved a fugitive manhunt, disappearing witnesses, uh, threats of lynch mobs, mistaken identities, uh, and finally a secret letter, letter to uh, unravel the whole mystery suddenly and unexpectedly. Um, There's very few murder trials of the day that could match this one for drama. And yet, despite all of this, it had gone completely forgotten for decades. And as I, the more I began to research the murder case of Charles and Susan Watkins, uh, it became a, a, a sort of a hobby for me uh, for several years on rainy weekends when I couldn't go out and do yard work. I was uh, you know, digging through these these papers when uh, I was out of town and staying in a hotel room at night rather than turn on some movie. I would I would be uh, working on my research and uh, became, it was, I, was, I, was, I was almost sorry when it was finally finished because, uh, you know, what do you do with your hobby when it finally is done? Uh, but uh, along the way, I discovered this case that, again, really deserves a lot more attention. And uh, I'm not going to go into exhaustive detail. Tom won't permit that. But I do want to say a little bit about uh, the, the background, at least, uh, and start with the uh, suspect and um, uh, the man by the name of Charles Watkins. Charles Watkins was born as a slave in Salem about 1863. We don't know his parents' names. They weren't recorded. Both of them apparently died when he was very young. He was raised by his grandparents, who were also slaves in Salem. But of course, uh, were freed in 1865 with the end of the Civil War. Uh, and in early adulthood, Charles Watkins worked as a farmhand, but uh, must have realized that was very difficult work. And uh, in the booming Roanoke Valley of the day, he got work as a hotel waiter for local hotels. Um, and a waiter in those days uh, in a hotel was a term that encompassed a lot of different tasks in a 19th century hotel. Um, it was a pretty good way for an African-American former slave to make a living. However, Charles Watkins also apparently turned to crime because about 1883, he was wanted for theft in the city of Roanoke um, and had to flee Virginia with uh, the law nipping at his heels. Now, where he went from there is unclear, but he does resurface in the historical record in Louisville a couple of years later, where he married one Susan, well, uh, Susan Wilson, Susan Wilson Watkins now. Uh, she also worked as a domestic in hotels, and the two seemed to make a fairly decent living uh, working in hotels throughout the Midwest uh, through the next few years. But it was not a happy marriage by any accounts. Uh, the two of them apparently had, uh, they split up for a while, they had uh, you know, very public fights, uh, and um, about uh, the, the marriage got even worse about 1890 
when the couple moved to, to Milwaukee to work in a large hotel there. Uh, Charles as a waiter, Susan as a maid in the hotel. And it was there that Charles met another woman. Her name was Edith Freeble or Ida. She went by the nickname Ida. Ida Freeble of Wisconsin, who also worked as a domestic in that hotel in Milwaukee. And uh, somewhere along the way, Charles and Ida began a, an interracial affair. Well, uh, apparently what happened is Susan discovered this uh, relationship and demanded that the couple move to Chicago, which they did. Uh, but significantly, Edith followed them there. And then one day in July of 1890, uh, Charles said he was going to the barbershop for a shave and never returned. Uh, soon after that, Charles and Ida appear in Roanoke, and Ida is using the last name of Watkins, although there is no evidence that the two ever actually got married. The couple went uh, from Chicago uh, to the Roanoke Valley. Here's Roanoke in 1891, and uh, since I know a lot of you aren't from this area, I will uh to say a little bit about the geography, the large city of Roanoke in 1891 was a very boisterous place. Uh, the population had grown enormously in the 1880s with the arrival of the railroad. Uh, Roanoke was an independent city, but it's surrounded by Roanoke County, a much more rural uh, area. Uh, and uh, nearby is the town then, uh, was a town of Salem, which was the county seat of Roanoke County. And so most of the legal drama takes place in Salem. Uh, but Charles and Edith settled here in uh, the boisterous city of Roanoke to begin their um, uh, unconventional and even in Virginia in the day, illegal interracial relationships. I say they, they were not legally married, uh, but uh, they, they uh, pretended to be. And strangely, I could see no evidence that their interracial relationship raised many eyebrows in Roanoke. Um, but uh, nonetheless, they, uh, Charles worked for large hotels uh, in, uh, in Roanoke and in Salem. Um, Edith worked for a while. She developed some health problems. And so uh, it was, they were a one-income family for a good while. But uh, Charles was uh, you know, making a decent living and the couple seemed to be getting their life together started until one day, one Sunday afternoon in April of 1891, there was a knock at the door. Charles opened it and who was standing there but Susan. His wife had reappeared come halfway across the continent uh, to either reclaim him or confront him. And uh, there's no clear evidence of which one she intended. Uh, well, uh, Again, I, I don't have time to go over all of the details of the case, but two days later, Susan's body is found lying in a creek in West Roanoke County near the uh, African-American community where Charles had grown up. Charles quickly disappears, becomes a fugitive from the law. Uh, Edith Idup is arrested and held briefly in the Roanoke County Jail uh, because there was never any mystery to the murder itself. Susan had clearly been murdered, and there was only ever one suspect, and that was Charles. Uh, so the mystery is not so much a whodunit of the, the murder itself. The mystery was where had Charles gone? And then secondly, why was Susan there in Virginia? Very significantly, it was accused uh, by many people at the time that, that she had been lured there to Virginia, uh, 
in order to uh, remove this inconvenient spouse from the story. Now, um, let's say a few words about the trial that ensues. And again, I don't have time to go into all the details of the, uh, uh, the manhunt for Charles uh, and then the trial that ensues after that. But I do want to uh, skip forward a little bit to uh, some other murder cases in the Roanoke Valley, or not murder cases, but uh, racial, racially based uh, crime investigations in the Roanoke Valley that happened in the next few years. Uh, because at the time that uh, Susan Watkins' body was discovered and Charles was immediately assumed to be the, uh, the perpetrator of the murder, there were almost immediately threats reported in the newspapers that he would be lynched if he were caught. Um, and significantly that he would be lynched by the African-American community of Roanoke County. Now, I will say that uh, while the big daily newspaper in Roanoke uh, reported that this, this was a real threat, the weekly newspaper in Salem, smaller town, uh, immediately said, no, there's no such thing. This is just lurid um, uh, fake news, we would call it today, of um, uh, the sensationalistic daily newspaper in Roanoke. There was really no threat of a lynching. Uh, but of course, in the South in the 1890s, uh, the threat of lynching was a very real threat in many cases. And certainly in uh, the Watkins case makes some interesting comparisons to others that follow soon afterwards. For instance, 1891, in November, uh, a Roanoke police officer by the name of Tom Mabry was struck over the head by a uh, suspect by the name of Jeff Dooley, an African-American uh, with a criminal past. And uh, Mabry lingered for a little while before finally succumbing to his wound. Uh, and at that point, Dooley was charged with murder. Immediately, word began to spread that he was in the Roanoke City Jail. Uh, this was in Roanoke City, not the county. Uh, and threats of lynching began to rumble through the city. Um, now, nothing came of this because the police uh, department at that point in Roanoke City um, moved Tom, uh, moved uh, Jeff Dooley uh, to protect him, and so there was no lynching. Uh, but it uh, and and there there was a trial. Jeff Dooley was found guilty and sentenced to hang. Uh, however, he died of uh, disease in the jail before it could be carried out. Uh, but uh, was very nearly lynched in 1891. Uh, much more troubling came in the next year, William Lavender in 1892. Uh, two young girls, in, again, in the city of Roanoke, reported that they had been attacked by an African-American man, and the only description they could give is that he was wearing rubber boots. Well, several men, of course, would have fit that description, but all the attention settled on a uh, man, African-American man in Roanoke by the name of William Lavender, who did have that sort of boot, uh, and the girls identified him as the assailant. However, there was certainly every reason to question their identification in retrospect. Lavender protested his, his innocence, uh, understandably, and was taken to jail, uh, but when his location at jail was made known, a lynch mob gathered to seize him, uh, the authorities moved him to another location, ostensibly to protect him, but the, the secret of that location was very quickly out, and it was suspected by some that it had actually been released by the police themselves. Um, as a result, Lavender was seized from custody, taken out, and hanged, 
At the most, he confessed to bumping into one of the girls while he was intoxicated, but that was a confession he made while the noose was already around his neck. So it was a very you know, ten, uh, tenuous confession as well. And very sadly, in the, uh, the William Lavender case, some many of the prominent citizens of the city of Roanoke and even some of the local press seem to endorse this unlawful violence. The Lavender case was then uh, eclipsed even more the next year in 1893 by the, uh, uh, the case of Thomas Smith and the Roanoke Lynch riot of 1893. Uh, and again, it's a lot more detailed than we have time to go into, but in seven, September of uh, 1893, a white woman in Roanoke by the name of Sally Bishop was attacked and robbed by an African-American assailant. And although she could not definitively identify the assailant, uh, the, the uh, suspect taken into custody was one Thomas Smith. Uh, his only connection to the case may have been that he was wearing a hat like the actual assailant had. Uh, never clear whether Smith was guilty or innocent, but uh, certainly his, his guilt was never proven in court because he also was taken to custody. And then a uh, within a day, a crowd of one or 2,000 people began to gather around the jail, growing to 5,000 people, many of them intoxicated, many of them from out of town, uh, coming in to form this mob. Um, the uh, Roanoke authorities uh, pledged to, to protect him. Uh, however, uh, that was uh, very, very difficult, especially when a riot broke out in the city. Uh, many people were wounded, some killed. The mayor himself was wounded in a, in a firefight. Um, and eventually in the melee, uh, Thomas Smith was broken out of jail uh, or broken out of custody, been moved from the jail, he was taken uh, by the mob and once again lynched by the people in a very gruesome scene, a uh, ghoulish mob that uh, some cases cut off pieces of Smith's clothing and even his ears as souvenirs, a very horrible scene uh, and um, very much an embarrassment to the growing city of Roanoke at the time. So here are three cases within a couple of years of the Charles Watkins case that resulted in two lynchings and nearly another lynching. Well, what about Charles Watkins? Uh, what happens with his trial? Well, again, time won't permit me to go into a great deal of, of uh, detail about his apprehension and his trial, but I will say that I began the research into this with a good deal of skepticism as to justice done in this case. Because after all, we're talking about a former slave romantically involved with a white woman in a small town in the South, accused, very credibly accused of murder, um, and uh, ultimately going to the gallows. Uh, and so my immediate reaction was that uh, there couldn't possibly have been you know, due process in this case. He had to have been railroaded uh, because that was what we would expect from the uh, the uh, society of the day. What I found though surprised me that uh, in fact Watkins got not only a fair trial but a almost obsessively fair trial. The court officials of Roanoke County, uh, when he is finally brought to uh, captured and brought to trial, they are uh, almost you know, very adamant that uh, every I must be dotted, every T must be crossed. We have to do everything exactly by the book to make sure that this very important murder case is carried out properly. We want to make sure that he receives 
uh, a, a not only a fair trial, but a, a trial that could not be questioned afterwards. Um, so he not only receives representation, Charles Watkins gets some of the best attorneys in town. Uh, William Moffat was one of his defense attorneys, uh, goes on to be a judge later on. William Ballard was a prosecutor. This is the judge, Wingfield Griffin. Uh, Moffat was part of a team of three other or two other uh, attorneys that were kind of a dream team of uh, attorneys in the day. They were the best attorneys available at, in Roanoke County uh, and widely respected and seemed to work pro bono. Incidentally, I could never find any evidence that they were paid for representing Charles Watkins. So he got very good representation. He was allowed continuances uh, for several months so that they could put together their defense. Uh, he was allowed to appeal the verdict after he was found guilty. Uh, he was even given the opportunity to explore an insanity plea, um, ultimately unsuccessfully, but the, he was given all of these uh, legal protections during his trial. He was afforded the presumption of innocence. Uh, his legal rights were respected throughout the trial, despite his, uh, his skin color. Um, and I finally concluded that not only did Charles Watkins get a fair trial, but he got a, a, uh, a trial exactly by the book. And as I said a moment ago, seemingly because Roanoke County wanted to make sure that this very important case that had drawn so much attention was handled exactly correctly. Now, why do I reach this conclusion? This was not a case of justice derailed by the prevailing racism of the day. Rather, this is a case that shows how the legal system could work. In the case of Jeff Dooley, of William Lavender, of Thomas Smith, the legal system could have worked because it had worked just a couple of years before, where an African-American man was put on trial and was uh, given a, an, an extensively fair trial ultimately found guilty, but found guilty on the weight of the evidence, circumstantial though it was, um, and uh, given the legal you know, uh, punishment for his crime of the day, which was hanging, uh, but it was done exactly the way it had to be done, unlike so many other cases. So I, I say that Charles Watkins got a fair trial in this case, not to defend the justice system of uh, the South during the days of, of uh, segregation and Jim Crow, but rather to point out that it could have been done better. Um, and the Charles Watkins case serves as an indictment of the many, many times that justice did not triumph in the South throughout uh, all of these years. There we go. So uh, was there any area where the court could have been faulted? Well, I did explore one. Uh, toward the end of the book. And that is the role of Ida Friebel, Edith Friebel, uh, Charles's paramour, uh, who uh, was held in custody. And again, many is much more to the story that I have time to go into, uh, but she was assumed uh, early on to be either an accessory before or after the fact uh, and was held in custody for a couple of weeks in the Roanoke County Jail, but she was never charge and really could not be because there was no evidence against her and all the evidence pointed to her lover Charles as the perpetrator of the crime. So she was released from jail and promptly hopped a train and disappeared from the story. Uh, but significantly, she was never called to testify. She was never indicted. 
never charged, certainly, but never even called as a witness in the case of Charles Watkins. Um, and why was this? Why was she not charged? The easiest answer is she could not be found. She had no reason to want to be found. But it does raise a question of whether the court in Roanoke County was content to bring justice down upon the black man in their custody with little interest in what role uh, Edith Freeble may have played in the murder. And it may have been more of an active role than the court ever got the opportunity to explore. Uh, for instance, uh, early on in the case, there were accusations that she had conspired with Charles to lure Susan across the country so that she could be eliminated as a threat to their relationship. Uh, the sheriff who arranged for the arrest of, of Charles Watkins spoke to the press and actually indicated that there were letters to those effect. Those letters were never introduced in the trial as evidence and they don't survive today, but the, the sheriff at least hinted that of their existence and that therefore Edith may have been a little bit more involved than was ever established in court. Uh, more importantly, just a, an hour or two before his execution, Charles gave a rather rambling uh, confession to the local press. Uh, and uh, that confession, some reason to doubt the accuracy of the confession as it's reported. Charles may have been a little mentally unhinged by that point, certainly. Uh, but uh, in that confession, Charles indicated that Edith not only knew that Susan had been murdered, but actually uh, saw her body and went through her pockets to take her money, uh, making her certainly uh, a witness to the crime, if not somehow an accessory to it, or at least to some part of it. But if that was the case, we would never know because Edith Watkins was never called to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth in a court of law. Very likely there were efforts to try to bring her to, uh, to, to, uh, to Roanoke County as a witness. Uh, ultimately, she could not be found. But even so, with the guilty verdict against Charles Watkins and with his execution a few weeks later, uh, the, the entire case was simply forgotten, uh, so faded into the shadows of history. No one in Roanoke County wanted to talk about it. Charles and Susan had no offspring to carry on a legacy. There were no defenders of Charles Watkins to say that he had gotten an unfair trial and therefore to keep the questions alive. Um, and Edith never reappears back in Virginia to, uh, to raise any eyebrows. And so very quickly, the case simply faded from public memory. One reason I wrote the book was to bring it ultimately back to uh, the one who matters in this case, and that is Susan. Susan Watkins is forgotten in all of this. Uh, and while her, her, her um, name was mentioned in the trial, certainly as the victim, um, there was almost much more concern with the, uh, uh, the trial against her, her husband and murderer than, uh, than, than her. And, and I could never get very far from the story of Susan and what happened to her, because of course, what happened to Susan should never happen to anyone. And that's why I gave her the dedication. I'll actually finish my talk with uh, the beginning of the book with the dedication, because this is what I wrote for Susan. For Susan, we could never truly know you. And something tells me that is our loss. The historical record speaks clearly only of the last few days of your life. Beyond that, we know so little. What were your hopes and aspirations? 
When you were a little girl, what were your daydreams of tomorrow? However you pictured your future, dying in a cold Virginia mountain stream, victimized by your husband, abandoned by your family, surrounded by strangers, buried in a pauper's grave, this could be not be what you envisioned. In life, you deserved better. In death, you deserved justice. And at the very least today, you deserve the dedication of the book, which tells your story. And her story, Susan's story, is part of our story. And that's why I was pleased to be able to write the book and uh, bring it back out of the shadows, uh, the case of Charles and Susan Watkins. But I will hold it there and uh, answer any questions or I believe Adam might have. And we have questions from our Facebook and or YouTube viewers for John. I always say I can answer any question you have. The answer might be, I don't know, but that will be, that is an answer. It doesn't appear that we have any questions in the queue at this time. Oh, we might. Oh, go ahead. Uh, we do have a question. Um, why the word fiendish, John? Uh, that, uh, that is actually a quote from uh, one of the initial reports of the murder. It was called a fiendish murder in the headline in the Salem Times Register in April of 1891. So that was the uh, some reporter's word back in the day. So another question is, uh, in the research, did you investigate Ida in Wisconsin? I did. I found some biographical information about her and also some evidence of what happened to her after the, uh, the case. Uh, say she was never brought to trial or, or made to testify uh, in 1891, but she does reappear uh, in census records in 1900 in Chicago. She marries again. Uh, or marries for the first time because say she and Charles are never legally married, uh, but she does marry, um, is has a son, is widowed and remarries and actually lives until the age of 90 uh, in the Midwest and probably was the last person alive uh, who was directly related to the, um, uh, to the Charles Watkins case when she died in, I think it was 1959. Uh, so she does reappear, but uh, if anyone ever knew of her role uh, in the uh, sad affair. Um, you know, we don't have any evidence of it. Uh, someone asked how the jury pool was selected. Uh, interesting question. Uh, to the east of Roanoke City is a smaller town uh, that was really only a few years old in 1891. It is Denton. And uh, because so much discussion had gone on in uh, in Salem. Uh, they went to Vinton on the other side of Roanoke County to choose the jury pool. Uh, and uh, beyond that, it was pretty much like any other uh, jury of the day. It was all white and all male, first of all. But the defense did have the opportunity to uh, you know dismiss jurors that they thought might be prejudicial against their case. Uh, just like the prosecution uh, had the opportunity to to, uh, to make you know make up part of the um, 
of the uh, jury pool as well. And um, it's uh, one of the interesting things of the case also is how quickly it went uh, by modern standards, because of course we're used to murder cases in the headlines that go on for months and months and months. And then a long, uh, if we're in a capital murder case today, of course there is a long uh, period of time between the trial and uh, carrying out the sentence. Uh, that wasn't the case in the 19th century. Uh, uh, the murder in the Charles Watkins case was in April. Uh, Charles was apprehended in July, brought to trial in uh, August, but then there were several months of continuances. So the trial actually begins in November. Uh, he is found guilty and executed in January of 1892. So from April to January was the extent of that uh, case. And uh, at the time, people were wondering why it was taking so long, because it was very common in those days for a murder case to go just a matter of three or four weeks between the actual crime and the execution. You mentioned that this case came up uh, for you because it was the last hanging in Roanoke County. Was there a decision to, to end executions or were there just no other cases that arose where that was the, the verdict? Uh, in 1908, I believe, uh, the new uh, system in the Commonwealth of Virginia mandated that all executions would take place in Richmond. Uh, and so uh, uh, after 1908, there were no, you know, the, if anyone's found guilty of a crime, you know, a capital crime uh, anywhere in the state of Virginia, the execution is not there in, um, you know, in the uh, uh, area. But uh, between that time, there were no other capital cases, to my knowledge, uh, even admitted in the courts of Roanoke County. So uh, this was the last one simply because it was the last capital crime that was brought to, uh, to the courtroom. There were only ever three in Roanoke County. It was simply not a place of a great deal of violence. Roanoke City, the boisterous town, had much more uh, crime and, and uh, violence uh, in that larger population. Um, but uh, Roanoke County, again, a very quiet rural community in the 1890s. An interesting question. What was the Roanoke jail like for women at that time? Uh, well, of course, you had the Roanoke City Jail uh, and the Roanoke County Jail. And uh, what seemed to be the case in the Roanoke County Jail is that women were kept in the same cells uh, that a man would have been, but uh, they would be segregated off, you know, for at least a little bit of privacy. Um, by modern standards, the jails were, you know, not at all uh, acceptable, um, you know, and not comfortable, you know, but and, and certainly uh, not much in the way of the amenities we expect in modern penal system. But uh, uh, for the day, I say uh, uh, she at least while she was in jail, uh, she could write letters to her, to her family, which she did. Uh, she could have visitors, and ultimately she was able to uh, hire an attorney uh, that, um, in essence, went to the to the courts and said, you have no evidence against my client, you have to release her, and they did. And what was the ultimate disposition and sentence of the case? Uh, for Charles, Charles was found guilty, uh, first-degree murder, uh, unanimously by the verdict. Uh, it only took about 20 minutes of deliberation because, again, all of the evidence pointed to his guilt. Uh, there was never uh, any other plausible candidate uh, as a suspect, um, and uh, there were there was no there were no witnesses to the crime itself. 
but uh, it could be very well established that Charles Watkins, uh, he was the last person seen with Susan, for instance, uh, and um, you know all kinds of evidence that uh, he had uh, committed the crime. And uh, what really blew the case open was a letter he wrote home to one of his relations in which he pretty much confessed to it. Uh, and that's not only re revealed where he was in hiding uh, as a fugitive, but also you know contained a clear, unmistakable confession of murder in his own handwriting. Uh, so it says, it's never a question about his uh, his guilt. Uh, so he's found guilty of first-degree murder, and uh, sentence was to be hanged. And a, a great final question: What's your next project? Uh, very interesting. Of course, I uh, now at the D-Day Memorial, and so we uh, we do a lot of research into uh, World War II and into the uh, role of Virginians on D-Day, and really, you know, all Allied personnel on D-Day. Uh, so that's where most of my research is these days, looking into uh, the Second World War, uh, which, of course, uh, subject you can never exhaust. Okay. Well, I hope everyone enjoyed John's talk. Please uh, remember that you can get signed copies of John's book um, through shopvirginiahistory.org, uh, through our virtual uh, retail shop. And I hope that everybody will be able to join us uh, for the next at-home banner lecture, which is on Thursday, May 7th at noon, when we'll have historian Mark Lender, who will speak on his new bit, book, uh, Cabal, The Plot Against General Washington. So thank you all for joining us. Stay safe, stay healthy, and we'll see you all again soon.